Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm I'm doing okay. It's uh it's a day early, an hour early. I'm I'm gonna power through here, but we'll, we'll, I'm I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm good. I heard the I heard the familiar sound of the the long coffee pour before we started recording. So I I, <laughs> I have faith in your ability to come good. That's right, because we've been recording later in the day than than before. But this is an old school, early in the morning. Let's see when the coffee kicks in. Twenty minutes in uh, podcast. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I, I, there were the ones in the middle of the day where I'd hear the pour and I wasn't sure whether it was coffee or whiskey at the prospect of having to talk to me for an hour. <laughs> I have no comment. <laughs> I, I do have a sponsor, though, which is MailChimp. MailChimp uh, is the longtime sponsor of Exponent, the only sponsor. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. With 15 million customers from small e-commerce, e-commerce shops to big online retailers, you can use MailChimp to reach customers and grow your business. Get started for free at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, build your brand, sell more stuff. And our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent. Indeed. Thank you, guys. So I thought we'd... Uh, <laughs> Today, we have to come up with a way to work our way into talking about uh, aggregation and Facebook, uh, which are, which are um, I wouldn't say they're new topics on, on Exponent, to say the least. <laughs> that's, that's probably a fair character. In fact, I, I, in fact, if anything, if anything, I'm going to go the exact opposite direction, James. I'm going to uh, reach across the ocean and pat you on the back and, and then reach behind my chair and pat myself on the back. It, it's been incredible over the last few weeks, uh, last month in particular, to see this sort of Facebook becoming this this bogeyman in some respects mm. being involved in in the russian investigation now there was this report in propublica about these problematic terms coming up in advertising uh choices which we're going to get to in a little bit but this kind of drumbeat starting to build in a certain section a certain segment of the sort of the online populace mm. uh about facebook needing some sort of regulation and, and this possibility and the specter of this happening is something that we have been talking about. And we're always apologetic to talk about it again because we've been talking about it frequently for, for quite a while now. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just thinking, as you said that, what was the first episode number where it came up? And I bet you it was pretty early. Um, it was the subject of a lot of our early conversations, but your deep interest in media and I think um, – I I suspect I have a little bit of a sensitivity to this topic coming from Australia and seeing what Rupert Murdoch did to the media in Australia, rolling it up and what can happen when you get a high concentration of of media power in in a certain entity or in the hands of a certain individual, like what the what the outcome of that can be and how it can be concerning. And yeah, it's it's kind of crazy to see how quickly it's come to a head, at least in terms of being a popular topic to be talking about, including, uh, in, I mean, the, the regulators or the, the policymakers are starting to talk about it quite a bit too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little... It's very easy to get stuck in an echo chamber. I mean, mm. uh, just in a, a sort of meta point uh, to make about you know discussion about Facebook, to say the least. But I think that's there is an aspect of that here where you have the you have this kind of weird feedback cycle where the prospect of Facebook facing some sort of uh, regulatory challenge or there being a problem is then reported and fed upon by people whose livelihood and background is being completely mm. uprooted by Facebook. And to say that their interest is very much aligned with making that a reality, I think there, there might be a little bit of an aspect here where this sort of the, the noise around this may be a little bit a, a ahead of sort of the reality of where things are going to be. But then again, that's what makes it very interesting because, you know, at what point does something become reality just by sort of sheer force of repetition yeah. and, and will. And you could certainly see that that sort of happening in this case. I, I mean, I would go a step further, which is like it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not just the media whose lives have been affected by Facebook, but I would also say a lot of elected officials too. And they read the media and then they see this and they start to get a sense of people's passions flaring about it. And, and maybe it's being slightly over amplified by the media that's been upset, whose industry has been upset by Facebook and the economic impact it's had on the media industry. But they're getting that sense. And uh, there's the impact on the last election. So people people are interested in this topic. And it's starting to, it's starting to bubble to the surface. 
So we mentioned a couple episodes ago when we talked about sort of like the advertising industry and why I, I come back to this sort of aggregation theory well. Because, you know, my belief is that it has predictive power, not just in like media, for example, but mm. also in, in, in other industries. And what is the effect of the internet and how do sort of points of differentiation and points of leverage, how have they shifted in the value chain? And my contention is they've shifted in a predictable way that mm. puts old world businesses in in a bad place uh, and enables new ones. And and those are sort of, you, you can see similarities across industry, which suggests there's sort of a, a you know, what's the sort of common thread, mm. uh, you know, between all those industries, in my estimation, it's the internet. And so there, there's a clear sort of connection here. And to that end, you know, I hate to go back to the well again in some respects, just because I know people like, oh, there he goes again. But I actually thought for me personally, this week's article about, about, the Russian ads, and this also applies to the the ads that ProPublica uh, uncovered about where people using hateful terms as their employer, and that that getting it getting it into the tool. And we maybe get more specifics in a little bit, but for me, it was actually very useful to flesh out the theory actually a little bit more. And we've talked about there being all these sorts of aggregators, whether it be Netflix or Uber or Airbnb or mm. Facebook or Google or Amazon and and what makes them aggregators. And one of the things we talked about a couple weeks ago is something that sets them apart from like Apple, for example, where Apple has a lot of the characteristics of an aggregator, particularly the focus on the end user and how they use the user experience as leverage over their suppliers. Mm-hmm. But the reason why they're different is because they not only have significant distribution costs and, and marginal costs in their products, but also transaction costs. Like, it, it, like to support uh, additional users, you know, you have to actually like interact with them and have a and have a you know a transaction with them to actually sell sell the device. And yeah, maybe that's a very slight cost, but it's still it's more than say a Facebook or Google or Netflix, where you literally can go online, never talk to a person from these companies, and sign up for the service and use it for years without ever talking to anyone. Like it's it's totally frictionless. From the user perspective, and that is one of the sort of critical parts of aggregation theory that, frankly, I, I hadn't spent that much time on because I spent so much more time on the distribution aspects and, and the marginal cost aspects, if, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally makes sense. Like you came at it from the perspective of um, building these companies being able to build a relationship directly with their customer and how they're able to serve them. And it, it makes a lot of sense that that's where the focus would be because that's the big difference uh, versus for these new companies versus the historical companies where the new companies are able to cut out the distribution or cut out the middleman and go straight to the customer and aggregate the customers. And that explains a lot of it. But the interesting part of what happened this week was uh, – you started to look at other elements, like a lot of these companies are two or even three-sided networks. And uh, looking at whether there are transaction costs there is actually a really interesting way of bringing light to the phenomenon that you initially described just between the companies and their customers. Right, exactly. Because Ericsson theory have always been focused on the, it's all about the user. Like that's right. sort of like, if there's like a, a, a like a three word or four word summary, summary of how the world has changed, that it's all about the end user and you deliver a superior experience there and you get more users mm-hmm. and that gives you leverage over suppliers. And you get leverage over suppliers, you get more supply such that you get more users. You get more users, you get more leverage over suppliers. And it, it it's, it's a supply, it's a shift from a demand from a supply-driven world to a demand-driven mm-hmm. world. You mm-hmm. own the demand, you own the supply. Whereas mm-hmm. it used to be, if you own the supply, you own the demand. And, and this is why it's such a fundamental shift. I mean, if you fundamentally change like the direction of river flows, like that's going to that's gonna screw up all kinds of things around that, right? And that's basically, in a nutshell, how the world has changed, is, is the, 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 the entire way that value flows through the chain has been completely reversed. Right. But there is still value in examining how the relationships between companies and their respective suppliers has changed as well. Because I think the insight you had is that has it has changed in different ways for different companies in different industries. Right, exactly. And so there's always been an aspect where I've uh, it's I mean obviously this isn't like some great insight that Google and Facebook are different, right? There's some uh-huh. aspect of the, from an aggregation perspective they're always like they're the canonical example of an aggregator, but mm. like 
what is it that makes them so much more powerful? I mean, because the the effect is so readily apparent there. And I think th- that's why I found this week article for myself anyway, and like sort of my personal thinking, like the the evolution of this sort of model in my head. This was a a sort of a seminal article for me personally. Like w- whether or not it was interesting to other people, I, I hope it was. But for me personally, it was very very interesting because it started to sort of categorize the aggregators themselves and what makes them different. And yeah, it, it rests on this transaction cost. So let's start with suppliers. You know, and I, it's funny, it's one of those things I've written about this, but it never like clicked in my head that this is a something that is like a predictive categorical sort of difference, right? The idea with Google, with Google like Google is kind of the original granddaddy aggregator. The idea that sites what is Google supply? Google supply are web pages, right? And web pages want to be listed on Google. So they would make their pages available to Google. They would create sitemaps that were tuned to Google's web crawler. Google like specifies how they want it laid out and people would do it for that. And then there's an entire industry like the SEO industry that is all about getting your page on, getting your page onto Google. And, and it's all, Google doesn't have to do anything. Everyone does it on their own. And so what happens is Google supply becomes ever more and becomes ever easier to to sort of navigate and put into their system because people are all doing it on their own. And for Google, it's it, there's no cost involved at all. And, and so that makes their supply basically it can grow infinitely. And, and you know what makes the whole Google so you know so brilliant is that you know I've, I, <laughs> and this is what's so funny about sort of like all these insights come. Like I've, I've had all these pieces floating around my head. Mm. There's a slide I've had. I used to always use in a, when I do talks about aggregation theory. Like I had this slide that talked about Yahoo, for example. Like the Yahoo Google comparison has always been very mm. interesting to me because Yahoo had a linear directory, right? And the problem was that the web was growing, the content was growing exponentially, but the the sort of directory could only grow linearly. So there was a mismatch, and so it it, it fell apart, right? It, it, the directory was only sustainable for like a year or two mm. before the just the the volume increased so much. And what made Google so brilliant? And so much different than what came before is Google was based on the link. Google garnered information and signal from the connection between all these pages, which meant that the more pages there were, there were more links. The more links there were, the smarter Google became. So Google's quality increased in line with the growth of the web, whereas Yahoo's quality declined precipitously with the growth of the web because the fundamental nature of how they worked were, were different. And, and, and so like I've, I've, like I've used that point before, but to kind of say, oh, this is a actual categorical differentiator, a company that can grow, that grows with its supply at no cost, like mm. that is something that is unique. And, and certainly Google is, is the prime example of that. But it's it's like such an awesome example because conceptually, from a customer perspective, the amount of friction between customers and each of those two companies is exactly the same. You type in one web address or you type in another web address and then you type in your search and you click enter and like conceptually conceptually it's the same thing right and the the that example is so good at bringing this to life because you can't it's it's critical to reduce the friction and improve the quality of the experience, not just between you and the consumer, but in, in the instances of, of search, it's just as critical to reduce the friction to create this flywheel that spins as fast as possible between you and your supplier. And that ultimately explains the difference between why why even though Yahoo had the early edge, it was Google that ended up ascendant. Right. And, and this certainly, and the, the other clear example of this is social networks. Like the entire mm. premise of user generated content is that you're not having to generate the, it's supply. Mm. User generated content is about supply. It's the supply of content that goes into your, into your app. The fact that Facebook has never had to, you know, until previously, which we can kind of mention in a moment, but Facebook has never had to pay for content. All people just put their content onto Facebook, right? And it facilitated the, the uploading of content. And this is where the, a, a social network where the users are the suppliers, why they are so powerful, yet so hard to get started. Because, because once you, once you have that flywheel going, it's almost impossible to yeah. stop. But to get it started is exceptionally, exceptionally difficult. So in this case, it was the same thing though. The content that made you want to go to Facebook, Facebook bore no costs in generating that content. It could it could grow infinitely. And not just that, but 
the more content there was, the more valuable Facebook came. It was, a, it was the exact same thing as Google where they grew in value with the content, whereas other you know services before that where to kind of keep track of stuff was so it was so difficult that you know it fell apart the more content there was. In this case, it got better the more content there was. I mean, and to extend it to the place where you extended it in the article and to think about it from the third, the third leg of these businesses, the advertising perspective. And we, we look at the way that these guys price now as this electronic auction clearinghouse with uh, AdWords or whatever it might be as something that we just take for granted. But at the time, this was a pretty revolutionary idea. And to the extent of how well thought out it is and how complementary it is to their business that the thing scales amongst an infinite number of advertisers with minimal human intervention just explains how brilliant and how forward thinking these guys were in, in terms of creating an advertising network that prices like this back when they did it. So there's almost – if we're going to categorize, right? There's let's, – let's go back for just a second. Mm. There's like the the level one aggregators what are companies like Netflix. Like Netflix is – people are like, how is Netflix an, an aggregator? They're paying for all their content, right? Can't someone else just pay for the content? Well, yes, they can. But Netflix is is – has that flywheel of users going such that mm. they can they can pay more and they can outbid mm-hmm. and 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 so they're getting an advantage over suppliers such that they're they're slowly but surely at least in theory gaining some sort of like monopsony power where they're they're the primary buyer the primary alternative but that's a much more difficult and convoluted process because they're still paying out billions of dollars right and they're taking on tons of debt to pay for this content that will theoretically pay off when they gain all the users by having that content in the long run. But it's a much more shaky, risky strategy relative to like a Google, for example, where people are just giving them content for free or Facebook where they're just giving them content for free. And so that's like the level one differentiation is having to like Netflix, I think, has a sustainable advantage in paying for content, but the mm. fact they still have to pay for content makes them something different, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Like if you if you don't have to pay for your supply, like if what you end up selling to users ends up coming for free, you're always going to have an advantage over someone who has to pay, particularly someone who has to pay billions of dollars. And there is risk associated with that. That being said, compared to other professional or other other places that other companies that generate professional content like Netflix, they do have one other edge from those users in that because they have that direct link, they get data on what those direct data on each of those individual users and what they enjoy. And that gives them an edge in creating content as compared to a traditional media house that doesn't have all those sensors wired into each individual home, each individual user and seeing how people are behaving as they interact with content, which does give them an edge relative to other providers in the space. Right, absolutely. And Netflix is still an aggregator, right? Mm. Like in that, that that is one of the many feedback loops that, that mm. come with having that sort of cycle, right? The point, though, is that they're a different sort of aggregator mm-hmm. on the supply side. And the thing, the thing with aggregation theory, again, it's all about the user. And all these companies share a similar direct relationship with the user that gives them leverage over their suppliers in, in a sort of like predictable way. And mm-hmm. so that's why they're all aggregators. But the way, I, the way I would differentiate aggregators now is how do they interact with suppliers? So yeah, on one level is like Netflix where you're still paying suppliers. You're just getting it. So it, it, you're talking about they have a sort of a differentiation advantage that they know what to pay for, mm-hmm. they have like an information advantage. And they yeah. also have just a, they have more, they have so many users now all over the world that their buying power is just, is, 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 mm-hmm. is ever higher, right? But then there's a second one, which is kind of like say Uber and Airbnb, for example. Example, where Airbnb is almost closer to the Netflix one, but there's still an aspect of verification. Like theoretically, Uber is not paying for for its cars. That's not actually true, though. They're paying insurance. They have to. Do, and then there's the transaction costs, like background checks and getting mm-hmm. people online and pictures. And there's and and they have to. They have to. You know, there's still a significant marketing expense going and making this. You know, making this aware and available. So it's a step up from Netflix in that they're not actually buying cars. Like you could envision a a, a Uber, and maybe this would happen when self-driving cars comes along where they do actually own the supply mm-hmm. and then it's more like a Netflix model where they're actually having to go, go, go buy the stuff but it's still an aggregator whereas Net, whereas Uber and Airbnb and, and services like that they're bringing stuff online but there's still a fair number of transaction costs that are involved in that so they're not Facebook Google level but they're also not sort of Netflix level there's sort of like this middle area where they're not bearing a lot of capital costs but they are bearing 
quite a few transaction costs. It's, I mean, this is the beautiful thing about this framework. It's already bringing interesting things to light because as you were talking about the level two versus the level one and how Netflix uses the fact that they don't have, uh, they still have to pay for supplies. They still have to buy content or buy, uh, make content or buy content from other suppliers. That's still a necessary part. It's interesting the way you said as, as Uber like moves into to a world of self-driving cars, uh, they might actually shift from this, I mean, not that you've formally named it, but let's for now call them level two aggregators down into level one aggregators. It's interesting that when the supply becomes completely commoditized, you're not getting some kind of information advantage or something. You might actually choose to take yourself from a level two aggregator down to a level one aggregator and build yourself a moat around that by deploying so much capital or some other advantage that nobody can then match you. And that's what we were told. That's what I was referring to with Netflix. They get all this data um, and they have, you mentioned their purchasing power is unmatched. Like that's an advantage that's increasingly hard for other players to match. And it's interesting that Uber, as it moves into a world or Lyft, as they move into a world of self-driving cars, might actually take themselves from a place where uh, there's no cost associated with supply into a place where supply does have a very big cost in order to generate a strategic moat. I mean, we're, 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 we're very much in danger of like going way off onto a tangent, but mm. it's interesting. I mean, I, I have to think this through more, but I would actually tend to go in the other direction. I think mm. we're Facebook being a, le- or sorry, we're Netflix being a level one. The reason why that makes sense is because they are, content is, is differentiated. Like mm-hmm. one piece of content is different than another piece mm-hmm. of content. And mm-hmm. in that case, owning the differentiation is valuable. Whereas I actually think the outcome, if there were self-driving cars, which I think are farther away than most people think, but when and if they come, I think that's going to be closer to a level three where there's going to be like fleet operators and people operating them. And I think all the value is going to accrue to the owning the customer relationship and then contracting on the back end or just having all these services. Huh. And there very well might be self-driving services that go that go to multiple front-end networks, but the one mm. that actually dominates is – and this is where I always thought Uber should go. I think Uber – like I think all the investment in self-driving cars was a mistake in part because, one, they're like – they're just in their position as a company. I don't think that it's worth investing in. But two, I think the structure of the industry in the long run could be such they could be a level three aggregator sitting on top of all these suppliers as opposed to being a level one, which is much more of the Google sort of model. Let's Anyhow. park it. It's fascinating, <laughs> yeah. but let's park let's it. Let's park it. A nice, nice pun. Well, well, well played. Uh-huh. Thank you. Unintentional. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, so getting back to, to Google and Facebook. Uh, oh, so – if we get to level three, where level three is is the suppliers, uh, the suppliers, there's no cost, like, and, and your supply is completely free, and mm. there's no transaction cost in getting it. All the social networks kind of fall in there, but there's like one more level, and 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 you referred to it with the advertising and the business model, and this is I call it super aggregators because I'm terrible at naming things, but <laughs> like there's there's some aspect where there's this is something that just completely supercharged and what differentiates. Google and Facebook from Twitter and Snapchat and 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 all the other sort of user generated sites is 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 the money making apparatus where it is just as automated and just as walk up user friendly and no transaction costs as the rest of their service is and this is what Twitter and, and Snapchat don't have the problem for Twitter was always and and I I put this chart in the article I, I've been right about it for a long time about Twitter. Like one of the drums I was banging all along with Twitter earnings from after they were a public company is they're not building a self-service ad product. The self-service ad product's not coming online. Mm-hmm. The self-service ad product is not succeeding. Like the first, you know, uh, I wrote I wrote about this in, after an earnings call one time where they kind of obliquely hinted at it. I'm like, and I put my finger on it. I'm like, this is a big problem. And mm-hmm. they got really mad at me. And then like six months later, they had released like, oh, sorry, like this, this product never took off. That's deadly. It's deadly for a product like this because the business model of Twitter never caught up to the supply model of Twitter or the consumption model of Twitter. And they were just selling ads in person with a sales force, and that doesn't scale. Mm. I mean, to put it in other words, like there's something about these level three aggregators where they where they move their their the generation of revenue from a variable basis to a fixed basis. Like, yes, uh, and that just uh, in, in an internet era, you want 
as much fixed costs and as few variable costs as possible because as you bring on users or as you bring on suppliers or as you bring on advertisers when you, your addressable market is 7 billion people you do not want it on a variable costing basis you want it as a fixed cost you invest once the thing just takes off and your cost basis does not change it's critical and that's exactly like if you want to if you want the technical business explanation of what of why twitter has not succeeded as a company weaving aside the 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 user facing issues mm. it's this it's that they got a they got a a user model that was zero transaction cost and scalable they got mm. a supply model by virtue of being a social network that was no no cost and, 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 and no transaction cost and, and scalable they never got the business side of that and they never mm. got that off the ground and and that's at, at, at its very core, that's the problem. I mean, this almost provides a basis for how you think about these tech companies. Uh, I mean, the the further breakdown of like you distinctly you you disaggregate um, where advertising is involved. Obviously, you disaggregate advertisers, you disaggregate suppliers, and you disaggregate users. And the aim is there them to move it to a basis where there's as little friction. It's as much fixed cost driven, uh, uh, as little variable cost driven. And the more that you're able to do that, the more successful you are likely to be as a is a tech company in the internet era. Yeah, and I think there's an aspect too, and this is almost gets how Apple fits in. Like Apple's like a level zero aggregator in that they're not really an aggregator, but the, but the model starts to get there. And you can see if you were to like chart this out, you can see like, okay, so Apple isn't quite there because they're dealing with physical devices and there's an mm. inherent limit to scalability of physical devices. But at the same time, what's their business model? It's actually selling those bu- those devices for a significant margin, right? Uh, and, and you go next one, level one, like Netflix, what's their model? They get money directly from consumers and a significant amount of money, right? They're getting $100 $120 per consumer per year. That's that's a lot. That's more. And as you go down this chart, the amount of money you're getting per user is decreasing. There's, mm. there's like a trade-off. There's a trade-off between the amount of revenue you yeah. get per customer and the scalability of the revenue that you that you can accrue. So you go down to, to Uber and, and there's more cost there and they're getting they're getting more per user. Uh, but on a less sort of predictable basis, it's like a skim off the top. You go away to the bottom, mm-hmm. you're getting nothing per user, and you're because you've had this entire engine next to it where you're, the amount you're getting per user is a is a scalable amount that 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 is based on how much they use it, and they're not even aware they're paying in many respects. Yeah, and as you go, yeah, that it's a that's a great way of looking at it. As you, if you don't exist in this world, then you need you tend to need a lot per user. And as you go further and further down, and you you've generated flywheels that are effectively frictionless that spin at this uh, uh, spin at this speed that is basically un uh, it's. Unher- nothing like this has ever happened before in human history then the amount you need per user is tiny because you got 7 billion folks and all the advertisers and all the suppliers that are clamoring to get in front of them right so this is so this gets back to the russian ad so how how on earth did Facebook not know about these ads? And there was, you know, someone on Twitter who responds to the article is like, this article is dumb. Like, they should have just reviewed the ads. And it's like, well, how do they review the ads? Like, to, he's like, just like they do on TV. Well, what? Uh. No, it's, but it, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting to think about. The whole thing with TV, and this could kind of tie back to Netflix, is how many uh, TV is a fixed resource. There are, you know, say, just take one channel. One channel, you know exactly how many minutes you have with that channel. You have 60 minutes an hour, you have 24 hours in a day, and you have seven days a week. And like, and it is- Everybody's watching the same channel, right? Well, not just that, but it's actually possible to view everything that's going to go in every minute, uh-huh. and it's, it, it's not cost prohibitive. And why is it not cost prohibitive? Because you have a, a resource that is fixed- uh, and so the amount that it will cost to observe that resource is also fixed, right? It's literally the cost of one person to view everything before it goes on uh, on the TV stage, uh, on, the, mm-hmm. on the channel. The whole thing with Netflix disrupting TV is Netflix has blown up that limitation. There is no temporal limitation on Netflix. They can show as many things as they want at any time, whenever they want. And now Netflix is still limited in that everything that goes on Netflix is cer- certainly viewed by a human. But you can Imagine see how there's YouTube, been- right? 
exactly like, exactly that's that that's the next step where because Netflix is is capped on that input mechanism because they're paying for content that limitation of paying for content is a restraint it's a restraint that allows someone to actually view it and it's not dramatically increasing Netflix's supply costs to have someone to actually view every piece of content before it goes on Netflix like they're paying for it of course they're going to view view it right but yeah YouTube is a completely different different animal the the price no pun intended, the price of having anyone anywhere being able to upload any amount of video, like just, I mean, some insane amount every day is uploaded is uploaded to YouTube, is it's impossible for someone to watch every minute of that. And if it was required to watch every minute of that, there's either two options. Either one, YouTube's cost basis would absolutely explode, mm. such as the service would be unsustainable, or mm-hmm. two, there'd have to be a cap on what can be uploaded. And it would defeat the entire purpose. And like you start to apply this concept to Facebook, every page viewed by every person is going to be customized. Like there's going to be different content. All these different users are uploading all these con, all this different content and all these advertisers are doing hyper targeted, like running a variety of ads, ads that might target as few as 10, 20 people. I think that's the minimum limit for Facebook advertising. And they, they're creating multiple versions of these ads to try different things to see what works. Like it would be, I mean, it, it 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 would probably be impossible. I mean, I I I don't know how many ads are uploaded, but I think it would end up being a a gargantuan is not even the right word. It would be impossible to review all the ads that are going up. It's just impossible. It's easy to say. Well, they should do it anyway, right? For for whatever intense purpose. Let's take YouTube for an example. YouTube has three hundred hours of video uploaded every minute. So that means so every minute of every day means you like you have three. If you want to review every piece of video, require three hundred hours per minute, right? So this is unsustainable as a business. I mean, by all accounts, YouTube doesn't really make money as far as we know. Google never releases numbers, and they really should. And I bang this drum all the time, but whatever. We don't know how much money YouTube makes, but. Without question, it would be unsustainable as a business if someone had to review every hour. And I was like, that's fine. Screw YouTube. Like they're, they have all these, you know, uh, these bad videos that I don't like. Well, are you sure about that? Like it's so easy to sit here and say, well, fine. If they can't review every video, then don't have it. If they can't review every ad, then don't have it. If they can't review all this, then don't have it. But, but there goes the internet, right? Well, like, I mean, not just that, but YouTube, I think, is such a great example because YouTube has. The fact that anyone can upload a video, which still remains very difficult technically to host your own video, and also from a bandwidth perspective is prohibitive, the fact that YouTube bears all those costs is phenomenal. Like, it's amazing. The amount of I mean, YouTube in particular, like the educational resources on mm. YouTube are mind blowing. Like, leave aside like all the, all, all the entertainment stuff. Like, that's amazing. It's amazing that there's all this knowledge and human, like, ingenuity and everything that's mm-hmm. freely available to everyone that it's not just that if YouTube went away or someone had to review every hour that, oh, now you have to pay a little bit more and you get it for free. It's not about paying a little bit more. It's about it not being viable, period. Right. I, I mean, but this is like, you're not very far. If you're willing to take that approach, you're not very far from saying, well, every, I mean, every page on the internet needs to be reviewed before it goes up. And it fundamentally, that fundamentally undercuts the whole the whole dream of it, which is this network that anyone has access to, that anyone can upload anything. Like, it's it's incredible that this exists, that, that there is this this network all over the planet that people can draw from and contribute to. And yeah, a vast majority of that stuff is crap. But if you were like, this is the difference between what the internet has unlocked now and previously that you had to have a printing press or you had to have a TV station or a radio station before you were able to publish stuff that other people could view. And now that's no longer the case. And yeah, there are going to be instances where companies are enabling that and making money off the top of it. But if you say just on the basis of someone is making money on it, therefore it needs to be reviewed. And if it's not reviewed, it's it, it can't go up. That is it for the internet. The whole internet is gone. Like the whole basis of it is gone. And you're back to a centralized command and control system that you have back in the old world. Yeah, but the, the, here's the thing. There's there's I th- I think that sounds good to an increasingly number, uh, increasingly large number of people. The internet is a bad thing. Like the internet has made things worse. The internet has enabled the rise of Donald Trump, which, by the way, I've written, uh, uh, and that this is a we should go back to to the old world. And you just kind of and I've done this 
previously as well. Like, of course the internet is good. But there's almost a sense I'm getting that, you know, maybe it's increasingly on people like us to to take the time to articulate why it is good, why it is helpful that it, that it is out there. And I think, you know, I, I referenced at the beginning this that sort of meta point about people inclined to hate Facebook, jumping all over the West regulate Facebook bandwagon. I think there's an aspect of that here where the people who were who were had positions of power and privilege in that old world where they got to decide what everyone read. They got to d- dictate the terms of discussion. They got to set the Overton window of what was permissible to discuss and what wasn't. There are flipping angry and mad and lashing out that they are losing that. And 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 they're and does that mean that what has followed is all good? Of course not. But it's also easy and obvious and beneficial to one's own pocketbook for all these old world people mm. to focus on all the downsides of the new world and to miss the new opportunities that are possible. And this is sort of a, you know, I come back to this, oh, that's that's fine for Ben, you know, and, and you know, he can start a, a, a company on the web. Like, But that's why I'm so interested in these new sorts of businesses and possibilities and the new things that are enabled. And, and my, and, <laughs> you know, it's here. It's not going backwards. So how can we enable these new opportunities and new things. I'm with you. And I, I, it's funny because it was in a slightly different context. It was in, a, in, the, in the context of um, we're not innovating. And, uh, you know, like we were promised flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. Like a, a few months ago, that was doing the rounds. And it inspired me to write something called Technologies Become Water, where I'm, I made the case for like what we have, what the internet represents and what cell phones, rep- smartphones represent is just phenomenal. And it is so easy to see the downsides of all this stuff. And I mean, this is the old thing, like g- good news doesn't sell newspapers. So the newspapers would always like who got murdered or war is about to break out or whatever but it is so easy to forget the impact the positive impact that all this stuff has had like the very fact that there are people listening to us right now that we have maps of every city that we can listen to any song ever played that we can upload a video or write an article and reach anyone around the world like that is taken for granted and yes these folks miss being being the only ones with printing presses but uh, yeah, I mean, I hear you, and I do think we need to do a better job of talking about some of the fantastic things that we've been able to achieve and what it enables. Well, I mean, it's it's not just that the newspapers don't get money for printing good news; it's that the newspapers have no interest in in saying that the thing that killed them is a good, is a good thing. I mean, the, mm. by definition, if if I, I come back, why do I talk about aggregation theory? Because I think it is fundamentally changing everything. It, like the the internet is fundamentally changing everything, and. and Sorry, Arius Theory is not changing everything. It's a way I explain what is happening about mm-hmm. the internet changing everything. To be clear, I'm not trying to take credit for the world being disrupted. <laughs> um, but no, th- this idea that things are happening in a predictive way, it follows from that the, the, who is hurt the most by the entire old world being disrupted. What does it mean when I say that advertising and the car industry and the television industry and, the, and all these in the media industry are all intertwined and they're all going to fall down together? Who is that bad for? The, it's the, bad for everyone who won previously. Everyone right. who won in the previous era are the ones who are going to be worse off in the future era because it's all relative. Their position in the future era, like, oh, that's great. I have the sum of human knowledge. I know I argue to decide what goes on the front page of the newspaper. Like mm-hmm. f- in a very narrow context, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It's not, it's not as good for you. And, and I'm sorry for people who, and I, who have lost their jobs. Like that sucks. And I, I'm not at all trying to minimize it, but the entire point of business, of of society, of having a political view is there is a trade-off. And the question that that I am asking, and I certainly have a point of view this, so I'm not saying I'm unbiased. The question I am asking is if we zoom out and we look at the totality of human society and humankind and all those sorts of things, are we better off as a whole such that some population no longer controlling the flow of information is, is a worthwhile trade-off. I mean, you take poverty is an obvious sort of corollary to this, right? Is it worth it from sort of a humankind perspective that middle-class wages and growth have been stagnant in developed countries such that 
there's been a massive lifting out of poverty, particularly in China, because all those manufacturing jobs went there. Like if we zoom out, is that worth it? Is that a worthwhile trade-off? Now, that's separate from the political issues and questions that go into this, which are very serious and need to be answered because if they're not answered, we're going to end up in all kinds of crazy places as we're, as we're observing. But it's still worth zooming out and asking, is it worth it on, on a grand basis? I mean, I, I think you touched on it right then. I think you take a look at, at the advances that humanity's made and poverty is a, is a fantastic measure. But the, this, I, I, you, you also touched on the fact that these gains are not equally distributed and those people who won previously are now starting to lose. And that includes the newspaper barons and some, and, and reporters that worked in once storied organizations or perhaps inside, inside other media organizations or in other, other, uh, other entities that are now being disrupted by the internet. And it's, it's not the, the, while, it's it's not a case of a rising tide lifts all boats. It is very there are definite winners and definite losers, and you are seeing a broad mass of people that were previously in poverty in places like China being lifted out, and that is undoubtedly phenomenal. But if you look within the United States, which is where many of these complaints are being leveled, the winners and the losers are vastly unevenly distributed, and that is part of the reason why you have the rise of things like Trump. It's and and being cognizant of these changes and how these broad gains that you're talking about, the zoomed out gains, are distributed not just globally, but locally inside of places like the United States, it's becoming an increasingly important conversation that we need to have. Because if we don't, then we're going to see more things like this that give these old winners a chance to complain about even more and to try and wind the clock back to try and stop these things from emerging in the future. Right. We're, we're very dangerous. This has been a very, a very, uh, <laughs> very wide excursion but I, I think the, the the broader point is an important one like there's is economic equality the, the number one experiment for Trump no of course not there's been a long ongoing conversation about that and the role of race and and all and mm-hmm. and misogyny and all those sorts of things and, and you know generally speaking to reduce anything to a sort of binary yes or no thing mm-hmm. is means you're gonna be wrong no matter what you're gonna be wrong on, mm-hmm. on both sides because everything is is super complicated and complex but what's interesting is this broader idea like what underlines the sort of you know racial explanation that people who are were used to being sort of the king of society by virtue of of their skin color like no longer are and there's a there's a backlash to that well that idea of getting stuck in your own context and having a backlash to what is up uprooting that, whether that be demographic change, whether that be economic change, whether that be the change in the flow of information, it, it, it's it's worth the that it, it's an important point. It's very easy for me, a clear winner of all these changes, mm-hmm. obviously, to step back and say, well, if you look at the whole world and look at the rate of China, it's actually been a great thing. Or mm-hmm. in the exact it's the exact same thing to say, well, if you look at the the change in demographics and the 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 wider you know cultural amenities and all these sorts of things, it's it's really a great thing. Or for me to step back and say, you know, the fact that newspapers no longer control the flow of information or TV stations, and instead anyone can start a site on the internet, and go directly to customers, it's a great thing. And <laughs> it turns out I'm a winner in all those three things. So I'm very mm-hmm. cognizant of that of that aspect. But but it's worth it's worth appreciating that those. Pushing back against this, ugh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but like there's an aspect here where politics is always personal, politics is always local, mm-hmm. and it's a point where I feel compelled to fight uh, this fight because the people who still have th- some of the largest audiences are, in my estimation, not also not completely objective about this. Totally. I mean, the Silicon Valley, I mean, you were talking about you being a winner, but it's not just you, it's me. And it's probably a vast majority of the people who are listening to this right now. And the, the basis of tech's PR strategy, Silicon Valley's PR strategies, we're, we're changing the world for the better. This is, look at all these fantastic things we've produced. And for the first time, I think ever, the tide is actually starting to turn on that because it's, it's people are, yeah, you could make rational arguments when people aren't, um, when they don't feel their industry is being disrupted or their position in society isn't being 
challenged. But when that does start to happen and people start to think, hmm, maybe technology is responsible for this and it starts to get, it's that, that narrative starts to get legs. This is going to be an instance where as a industry, we are going to need to get a lot better at selling the narrative and also thinking about the impacts that we're having on other folks. It's not just enough to sit on our laurels and say, you know what, we're doing fantastic stuff that's just changing the world for the better because there are people that are clearly suffering as a result and all the outcomes of these things that we're doing aren't necessarily beneficial. There are costs associated with it and we're going to need to do a better job of advocating for what we do, but also thinking through the impact and making sure that we bring along the losers as well. It's not just enough to say we're winning, that that's good enough. Yeah, the, well, the whole PR strategy thing is interesting because my, my actually suspicion is the anti-tech crowd is going to overplay their hand because the the general population as a whole, I think, still is generally uh, feels great about tech companies. And we saw this in the, in the context of like Amazon, for example, right? Everyone loves Amazon. Like when Amazon bought the, bought Whole Foods, everyone was very excited, right? Like, and there's there's a certain crowd that's like, oh. Concentration of power is a bad thing. Amazon, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, shut up. I don't want to hear about it. Like, I love Amazon. Amazon's going to do, you know, Amazon in charge of Whole Foods sounds awesome. And I think there's an aspect, you know, yeah, maybe people don't like love Facebook or they love Amazon, but they use Facebook an awful lot and they like connecting with their friends and family and they don't feel Facebook is doing them any harm. Same thing with Google. Like, they 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 enjoy the fact they can use Google. And they're, they're the sort of political aspect of what will or will not happen from a regulation perspective, I think in this sort of media, echo chamber, it's very easy to presume there's a lot more opposition and concern about these companies where there's a ton of concern about Facebook and the media industry, for example, right? Does that actually extend to the population as a whole? I'm a little more skeptical. Mm. Uh, yeah, maybe that's fair, but I guess it becomes a, a function of whether this is a a one-off thing or whether it levels out at this general humdrum or whether this continues. And as these companies have more and more of an impact on society, and I continue to believe that they will for all the reasons we've been talking about for 125 episodes, I think the opportunity and the likelihood that these types of things will come up to the forefront will continue. Um and the possibility that this this humdrum will start to turn into more and more, I think is I think is increased. Yeah, for sure. Anyhow, well, that was a massive uh, massive digression. I, the the point that I want to sort of circle back to is getting back to this zero transaction cost aspect of the business model where advertisers. <laughs> nice segue, Ben. Well, thank you. Where advertisers <laughs> sign up and, and no one is aware of that. You know, oh, oh, this is the sort of connection I wanted to make a while ago for we ended uh. up in China in, in poverty. Uh, <laughs> it's easier to say, okay, I get the benefit of YouTube. Anyone can upload a video. That that's you. Know, I can see that's beneficial. You know, or or anyone can you know, host a website or anyone can sign up to Facebook. Like, oh, I get it. I can see how that's beneficial. But ads, who gives up about ads, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and but the, I think that is to, like, if there were a significant amount of limitations put on advertising where they had, everything would be reviewed, it was much more difficult and it was much more costly and, and time-consuming, time there's a few things that would happen. So one, uh, who would, Google and Facebook would still, would benefit much more than any of the anyone else, right? Like Twitter, for example, is going to get really killed if they have to add on like because even more costs, right? Exactly. Like the ones who can bear it the most for, to start out with are Facebook and Google. So adding on more regulation and costs are going to only accrue mm-hmm. to their benefit. It's not like digital advertising is going away. So much attention is shifting away from traditional advertising places to online that, of course, the money is going to go somewhere. And if you hurt Google and Facebook, but you hurt everyone else even more, guess who's going to win? Google and Facebook, right. you're going to entrench them. So, which is you know a, a predictable and repeatable story when it comes to regulation. The ones who are the incumbents, of course, they don't like it. Google and Facebook don't need the help from regulators, and they're of course they're going to fight against regulation. But if it comes, who's actually going to feel the most pain? And that money is still going to go somewhere. Uh, it's it's funny how with this topic in particular, and it's it's a drum you've been beating for a while, but people focus more on the absolute impact of regulation versus the relative impact of regulation. And they see an absolute impact costing Facebook and Google a lot of money because they're obviously the largest advertisers, for example. But I think the point that you're making is the relative impact is much more interesting and and impact that uh, that 
that wipes out the alternatives. And that's what this will do if everybody is forced to do this level of review is it's actually going to benefit Facebook and Google, even though it looks at the surface like this regulation is targeted at them. Right. So we're not to that point and no one's proposed that necessarily, but there is like regulation in Europe around like, like data privacy, for example, that is going to impact Google and Facebook massively. But guess what? It's going to kill everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, ad networks are in huge trouble with this stuff in a way that Google and Facebook, Facebook has their own closed loop on their system. And Google, people still tell them what they want. Like they tell them what, like people literally go up to Google and say, Google, show me an advertisement about travel. <laughs> because they don't say that, but they type in like uh, plane tickets to wherever. And they, of course, it, it, it's, it's massively lucrative. And that's not a privacy issue. It's people literally telling Google what they're interested in. So, anyhow, they're going to, like, they'll be fine, relatively speaking. That's exactly right, relatively speaking. But the other thing about this sort of zero friction advertising that I think is worth pointing out, and Sheryl Sandberg, in a, in, you know, posted a, a post just, just a couple hours ago about this, about this point. And, and she's banging this drum on earnings call for a while and i absolutely believe it the the idea that the mom and pop store down the street can literally with just a few clicks set up a facebook ad and target people around them that's that's amazing like people have this view uh, i we've <laughs> if i ask about advertising in the past like there's there's a certain segment of people and and i guess talking to them isn't very particularly helpful that will believe that advertising is inherently evil and it doesn't matter blah 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 well at the end of the day like it's not. I, I I disagree with that. I think if you were a new company or a new startup or whatever it might be, would you take X amount of money for, for X amount of advertising opportunities? Of course you would. Because what's the point? You're trying to make people aware of something they were not otherwise aware of. And and that doesn't that's not a bad thing. But I mean, even independent of whether you find it distasteful or not, it's it's a been a massive percentage of GDP. It is a fact of life and it is an interesting industry. And it has, I mean, you want to understand Facebook and Google, it's impossible to do so without understanding where they make money and they make money on advertising, right? Yeah, but uh, no, but I'm willing to double on this point. If anything, a problem with advertising is that it, it, because the barriers to entry were so high, mm. it was the province of these big companies where they got a virtuous cycle since so the big became bigger, right? If you were a big company, mm-hmm. you could afford to make to do television advertisements. You could afford to do these larger advertisements. And the small fry are left doing like classified ads that you're pay, like a, a, an inch of ink costs like ten, you know ten thousand dollars or whatever it is, right? And it, relatively speaking, and if anything, with you. there's an aspect of Google and Facebook that levels the playing field mm-hmm. to a significant degree. And it, you know, I talked. I wrote about this last summer, like Dollar Shave Club. The dollar, everyone's like, oh, Dollar Shave Club paid for advertising. Of course they paid for advertising because advertising is necessary. But they, how were they able to even get off the ground such they could basically, you know, P&G could spend $90 billion or whatever on Gillette and this small fry could come along and take this huge portion of the, of the market by unit share because they started on a much more accessible mm-hmm. playground, which was a YouTube video and Facebook ads. That's good. In my estimation, that's a good thing. I think it's good for the world and good for the economy that a new company come along and challenge Gillette from just adding on another blade and making me pay five bucks more for it. <laughs> I mean, backing out, there's a reason these big companies spend money on advertising, right? And it, it, it may be dirty or you might find it distasteful, but it definitely works. And in the same way that AWS has leveled the playing field such that you don't need to own a massive data center in order to be able to get servers up and running, the step function is just like you have a credit card as opposed to you have $100,000 to get a server farm going. The same is true of advertising. It's, it's exactly the same thing. It is a, necessary and it's required in many instances for businesses to get off the ground and for all the reasons you just stated yeah i'm with you yeah and i i I, i'm gonna triple down on this point because i really think i really think it's so important if you think about if i'm right that in the the future is the sort of much more individualized much more niche focused smaller businesses as opposed Mm. to these big sort of conglomerates then this is like Facebook advertising or Google advertising is a critical component of that. And it's a critical piece that they can move forward. And oh, by the way, as long as I'm ranting, and the coffee has clearly kicked in, uh, <laughs> as long as I'm ranting, there's this whole, like there's this story going around about like the CEO of Restoration Hardware saying, oh, we spend all this money on ads and realize only 22 of them matter, which are misspellings of our name, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Like the fact that you're listening to an offline 
business that's been around for years that is predicated on having like optimal like a store location and a brand name. That's an old world business, and you see stories about oh, PNG is is finding that that digital ads aren't very effective. Of course, they're not effective. PNG's entire structure as a company is predicated on securing shelf space and then using advertising mm. to justify them raising prices over time. That's what they do. There are these big companies that are built around there being you needing to be big to get shelf space you needing to be big to do television advertising and building a virtuous cycle between those things such that it accrued to the bottom line if you're in a new world of e-commerce where you search for items or a new world where you you advertise by by very narrow targeting does narrow targeting help if you're tied no, the entire point of Tide is to appeal to a massive number of people. Targeting helps if you're developing a new kind of laundry detergent that appeals to mountain climbers. Like this this takes out mountain dirt. I don't know if that's mm. a product, but you can absolutely see it being a product. You can see it being a product that is only viable because Facebook makes it possible to target mountain climbers. Right. I mean, the shelf space point is the critical thing. I think people forget that we're moving to a world where that's no longer the case. Toys R Us went bankrupt. Like increasingly, you're not going to be discovering things by walking through the supermarket and seeing it on the shelves. You're going to be seeing it because how? Exactly right. Like someone is going to say, I'm going to build a product for these people, but how are they going to reach them? And it's advertising. There may be some element of word of mouth, but there are only so many products you're going to post to your Facebook wall or onto Twitter about how fantastic they are. You're not going to do that all the time for everything maybe for some, not for all of them, for everything else, the way for the business to even let you know they exist is to advertise to you. Right. So, so, so again, that's why, in, in, yeah, it does. Advertising matters. And Facebook and Google sort of advertising, this infinitely scalable model, it's necessary if we want to build these sort of new kind of niche-focused businesses. So, mm. so Because it, it, it's so easy to sit here with your context being the world as it is today and say, you know what, I, I don't care. Like Google and Facebook should do a better job reviewing everything. And and to forget about there are very real benefits, not just to Google and Facebook. Believe me, there's massive benefits to Google and Facebook, right? They're raking in billions of dollars because of this model. So it's not I'm not setting that aside. I'm saying there are actual societal benefits to these models that I think are very easy to miss and ignore just in general because it's upside the status quo. And also because advertising, most people view it sort of distastefully and and here, here's Ben, you know, talking about advertising again. But I think it's, I think it's, it's worth remembering. Agreed. So, but that does get to a second, to one more point that that I kind of wanted. I'm not sure I could fully tease out, but I've been thinking a lot about this week. Is what's going to be really interesting is when it comes to regulation and Facebook and Google going forward and how they're going to think about it. I think it's going to be worth bearing in mind that. I just articulated these sort of societal benefits, but let's be super clear. I just I just said it. This is massively profitable and critical to Google and Facebook. They like print money because they have transformed advertising into being a fixed cost where the cost stays stable and the revenue just keeps growing, right? Mm -hmm. And they will do everything possible to protect and preserve that. And so you saw like like Sandberg had had some things here. Like for example, there. Let, let's talk about that. Like how did these ter these awful terms get into search results? Well, because people would list their job as like or the company they work for. I work at Company Jew Hater, <laughs> like which obviously doesn't exist. But it's like, well, Facebook should have a list of all the companies in the world. Well, how is like listen really? to yourself, right? How can Facebook have a list of all the companies in the world? Are they supposed to go go and canvas the entire world? No, like the process works of people putting in their companies. That's the only way it works. But clearly, you know, like where do you draw the line between Facebook should have known better and there should be abuse? And so Facebook has gone through and they've reviewed a bunch of them. They've taken them out. They're going to have more review of those when they go in. But notice all Facebook's sort of like solutions here, which which I think are mostly make sense, but they're all fixed cost solutions, right? We are going to review, they did a review of the list once. That's a fixed cost. They are going to review words when they're put in. And at the end of the day, like the number of companies in the world theoretically is not growing, you know, at the speed with which content's growing. So it's sustainable to review those. And, and but notice, like, you're going to see this again. Their reactions, their policy proposals are all going to be predicated on preserving this sort of fundamental nature of their business. 
Yeah, I, I, but for all the reasons you just stated and the benefits of advertising uh, and and letting the, the mum and pop stores be able to do it or letting these new small brands be able to do it, for every time more and more of these restrictions are put in place, it's it's going to make it a little bit more friction, a little bit harder. Like some new company starts up and now there's, in the same way we get frustrated by uh, government bureaucracy delaying uh, business registration or all the forms that need to fill out. Like we're starting down that path here as well. And I, I guess I, I'm... I'm a little bit on the side of if there are people crazy enough to put that kind of thing in their in their um in their job title and I find it incredibly distasteful that's not I don't blame Facebook for that that's that's human beings just being dickheads yeah, yeah I mean it, this is it's there's an aspect of being in this position that feels you know a little uncomfortable because the tide is 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 so turning ag- against these sort of companies but you know to me, there's an aspect of like we can't go back. Like we're not going back to the old world of uh, 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 the like the internet's here. It was an accident all along, and its impact is going to be accidental. No one would have, no one, none of the powers that be, had they known the impact of the internet, would have put the internet in place. Right? It was by mm. it, it had to happen accidentally and organically. Mm. And so, to me, any sort of policy discussion or think about regulation. This is my my piece of a few weeks ago about how antitrust needs to change. What I'm trying to get at is we have to think about you you we we can't think about the world as it was. We have to start mm. with the world as it's going to be. And like a critical question that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about is like is it really viable given the way the internet works and given the gains that come from scale and given these zero transaction costs, like, and you made this point, can we really ever have a world where we don't have massive platforms? And if that's the case, then the regulation should not try to like kill the platforms because right. it's going to be fruitless. It's, it, it's, it's, and I regulation is, is almost certainly like necessary, but I, I almost feel like the direction of the regulation is like the exact opposite of the way most of the pro-regulation people are thinking about it. It's to keep the platforms as much more akin to sort of common carrier regulation, like keeping them neutral. And you have all these people putting like, they want them to censor and they want them to, to make changes. And believe me, the content they want censored is is horrific, horrible content. But if we're not thinking through the way the world's going to be in the long run and, and starting with that framework when we think about regulation, it's not just, you're going to have all sorts of bad effects. And, 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 and the ones are going to suffer to the point we've made again and again are all the companies and businesses that are not yet born, but we need to be born if we're going to shift our economy to one that's centered on the internet as opposed to centered on distribution like the one we've had to date. Right. I, I would say, though, that uh, at least in this instance, that Sandberg statement and, and Facebook's reaction in general is indicative of exactly the kind of thing we don't want to do. Like, that is that is an old world solution where we're going to go through and we're going to review things. And like, perhaps, I mean, I think these tech companies need to get smarter about their approach in general. So one example, which recognizes that all this infinite amount of content is being created that is sensitive to this element of uh, of the fact that these hyper-specific uh, ads were purchased by Russia on Facebook uh, in the election, perhaps there's a solution whereby rather than trying to go through and sort everything and determine which words are appropriate and which aren't, maybe you consider a, a, a solution whereby you actually keep an archive of every single ad that's posted, you associate it with an account, you make it searchable for people to go through. Perhaps, I, and I'm not saying that's perfect, and I'm sure there are reasons why it wouldn't work, but that's the kind of solution that should be uh, like that along that axis is more more the kind of solution that I would like to see implemented where it's recognizing the fact that there's this infinite new world where all, all, all this incredible uh, all these things are being created and rather than think about it in terms of what what is and isn't allowed and a human needs to review it recognize that all this content is up there and let's put it out there in the public domain increase transparency and let people search on it for example rather than trying and go 
through and create a list of approved keywords. That's exactly right. And I, I've made this argument previously. I think we've talked about this on the podcast as well. I think this solution is one that drives towards transparency. There, there, mm. The volume of information is such that the to to put controls in place uh, to anticipate everything is is problematic. Now, this has to give Facebook a, a, a total pass here either, to be, to be, to be clear. And, you know, th- I analogized some of what's happening with Facebook to like Microsoft, like when they w- were so pell-mell to get on the internet that they released uh, an operating system that had tons of security holes in it and they didn't like mm. think through all the implications. There's certainly an aspect of that of that here, I think, with Google and Facebook. And and by the way, it was funny when the ProPublica article came out, like I told a friend, I'm like, I guarantee in a week there's going to be a, the exact same article about Google. It took less than 24 hours <laughs> where you're like, oh, look, you can do the same thing on Google. And why? Because mm. that's the nature of it being scalable and, and sort of, you know, that, that that no humans are involved. Like it was, it was sort of inevitable. But in some respects, the ProPublic article was was almost the system working right. It was, well, this is a problem, and then it's and now that it's no longer a problem. It, it it's been fixed. And I think to systematize that and make it much mm. more approachable is exactly the right case. And I think your ad solution is. We'll get into why it's not viable right now, but I think in the long run, that's exactly what we should go towards. The the, the thing with ads on TV or billboards is it. Anyone can see them. They are possible right. to 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 review. And so it's not just like illegal election ads. It's also like dishonest ads or ads that, that, that say things that are not true. Like how many dishonest ads are on Facebook that make claims about a product that are not actually true, but they're all like hidden and no one knows about them. I bet there's a whole bunch of them. And I bet it's a big problem. And I bet Facebook will push back against uh, against this because it's probably very profitable. But that's a big problem and something that needs to be fixed. But how do you fix it? I don't think you fix it by Facebook reviewing every ad. You fix right. it by not letting these ads be hidden, by making them out in the open and transparent so that they can be viewed and, and, re- and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's this nation a notion of scalable solutions for the what is it uh, effectively an infinitely scalable problem? Yes, the solution has to be scalable because the exactly exactly that's exactly right. So to to the point, I think one thing that's been missing with the Facebook, I mentioned this in a daily update, uh, is Facebook has a consent decree with the FTC because they were like changing like stuff that used to be private was no longer private. And I think like Facebook doesn't want to remind people about because it was a pretty terrible thing for Facebook to do and they got they got nailed about mm. it. But they cannot retroactively change the privacy settings. And users are or advertisers are users. So they can't go like for those Russian ads they can't go and make them public to researchers. Like it, it's it's not allowed. It's it's literally against you know it'd be against the law. They can if they're compelled to by a subpoena or like a search warrant, which actually happened. They can then deliver them right because that that sort of overrules that. But I I think it's it's been kind of weird because I I think why Facebook hasn't defended themselves on this point. I think it's because they don't want to point out the fact that. Uh, the reason we can't do it is because we were super scam- scummy with your data uh, uh, previously. But you know that's clearly a problem. I think face, but I think this needs to change. And if Facebook won't change it, then it should be changed by the powers that be, where advertisers' paid placement on Facebook should mm. have to be publicly listed and transparent. You should not be able to run ads that only some people see and no one else can see them and they're, they're hitting they're on your page. Like, because what you can do is you can run an ad. It doesn't show up on, because you have to have a page, right? A user has a page on Facebook, mm. but you can have a post that does not appear on your page, but does appear in the places you've placed it according to the advertisement. And so no one, unless one of the people who happens to see the ad passes it on, it's impossible for a third party or a watchdog or whatever it be to know what those ads are. And I think that's hugely problematic and should change. Facebook should change it. And if they won't change it, it should be changed by, by the powers that be. Yeah, but I mean, it's a it's a interesting example of the types of solutions that we need. I think that's the, this isn't the one the one thing that fixes everything, but it's the it's a example of the type of thinking and how it needs to be different from how it's been in the past. Right, and it's worth pointing out that if every advertisement was available and free, like bigger companies could more easily spy on and be aware of like smaller challengers to them, right? Because they could just go through the ads and say, oh, look, you know, P and G could go through the oh, what's this? What's this? shaving company like all these ads that are popping up but like what's going on here and they could respond much more quickly like there's a trade-off to there's always a trade-off there's always always a trade-off and the bigger you are the more you tend to benefit from this sort of thing but that said but but to be an absolutist about anything is not productive either right i could made that point out being binary and black and white like some in this case i think the appropriate trade-off towards transparency 
even if it can like theoretically benefit like bigger players so they can spy on their smaller players better, that's okay. It's one we need to make in this case. But this is the nature of the discussion we need to have. Not like mm-hmm. Facebook do a better job censoring. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm also very nervous about the time. I realize with our little diversion down the rabbit hole on poverty and inequality, we've gone a little longer than we normally do. Uh, we certainly have. So uh, believe it or not, we got an hour to talk about Facebook and irrigation theory. Never. <laughs> so the, the news news of the day is happening in Taiwan. Uh, Google buying the remaining piece of HTC. Maybe we'll talk about it. I, I'm sure I'll write about it soon. Uh, so I'm going to get mm. to that, and I will talk to you. Oh, our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent, as they do every week. Awesome. Yes, you will talk to me next I week. Talk, I will talk to you next week, and I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Like, yeah, I need to drink alcohol off to get me off. Yeah, of my no more coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you later. Have a good one, mate. Bye.